Revelation chapter 17. Revelation 17. After the seventh bowl judgment, an angel shows John a woman riding a beast. And we know these are symbols. Um, There's not a a woman running around, you know, with a goblet full of blood in the end times. We know they're symbols because this chapter explains to us, well, the woman means this. The beast means this. And we saw last week that the woman represents Babylon the Great, the, the first global religious system which spawned numerous other religious systems to deceive mankind and persecute God's people. That is coming back into one again. It's going to, all those branches will come back in the end into one global religious system. Now, from other scriptures, we know that the beast is the Antichrist and his kingdom. And because these two are connected, one riding the other, they are both actually Babylon the Great, interweaving a global religious system, a global government, and a global economic power. This morning, we're going to look at their relationship and how it changes at the midpoint of the Great Tribulation. So chapter 17, we begin in verse 7. It says, and the angel said unto me, why did you marvel? That's where we left off last week. John was shocked when he saw the woman drunk on the blood of the martyrs. And so, you know, the angel says, why are you so shocked that Jesus taught this? And then he says, I will tell you the mystery of the woman. I'll explain all this to you. End of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So the idea here, when we, remember we use the word mystery, it means something that was previously unknown but has now been revealed. And so the idea is John's seeing this and he's seeing things that he doesn't fully understand and the angel's explaining to him, it will be fully understood in the end, it'll be all revealed, it won't be hidden, nothing will be hidden then. But I'm going to explain to you, since you're not going to be around during that time, I'm going to explain to you what it all means. And so what we have here is we've got before ourselves a very organized explanation. First, he's going to tell us what the beast means. Then he's going to tell us what the seven heads are. And then he's going to tell us what the ten, uh, ten horns are. And then after that, he's going to explain how the woman and the beast and the heads and the horns all interact. So this angel's going to give us a lot of information uh, today. Now, the first seven verses, or the first six verses, focused on uh, more on the religious part of Babylon the Great. Today, most of our time, we'll get into the more government side of things. So, the angel explains first off, I'm going to tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her. John has misunderstood things. He says, well, the woman rides the beast. He's like, no, 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 no. The beast carries the woman. It's different. The angel clarifies she's being carried. The word there means to carry a heavy or burdensome object. She she thinks she's in control, and that's how John sees it at first, but the angel clarifies, no, she's being carried, and the beast sees her as a burden. And thus we see a tension in this relationship between the woman and the beast from the start. Whoever the powers are that front this global religious system, the Antichrist isn't as happy to be singing We Are the World as they are, okay? Does anybody remember We Are the World? Okay, thank you. Two people were alive when I was, okay. I think, I think I'm not the oldest person here, but you know. I, I thought about using Imagine, but I don't even know what that song's about, so that was before my time, so. So, He's not happy about this. The Antichrist sees him as a necessary evil, but he also sees him as something that will hold him back at some point. Now, 
If you remember last week, I mentioned that this is one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible to interpret. The first six verses aren't too difficult, but verse 8 begins the the real challenge. So we're going to try our best this morning. So verse 8, the angel explains, the beast that you saw was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell near shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. So we start with the beast. The angel's going to identify the beast for us. Now, the beast that you saw, is his first explanation, was and is not. We're going to take it in chunks. So the beast was existing for a period of time, and then he isn't existing. And shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. It means he was existing for a period of time, then he's not existing, and then he's about to come up out of the bottomless pit, the abyss, the prison for fallen angels, and go into perdition. So when he comes out, he's going to go right into destruction. So this beast, as we see here, has four stages to it. He is trucking along just fine for a while, then he's gone. Then he's back for a short period before he's destroyed for good. And what we see next is that his return from being gone provokes a dramatic response. It says, and they that dwell on the earth, those are unbelievers, the earth dwellers, they shall wonder, be amazed, be shocked that he was gone and he's back. And then it reminds us they're unbelievers whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Why are they shocked? When they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Okay? Everybody not confused? Great. One other thing to add here. There is an untranslated word before was and is not and yet is at the end here. That means someone or something. So in other words... The unbelievers in the world are shocked when they behold the beast, which is something or someone that was and is not and yet is. Now, where this gets tricky, of course, is that this someone or something emerges from a place that human beings and nations are not from. There is no kingdom in the abyss. There, you know, it's not like there's little countries and you know, these demons are going, hey, we belong to Germany and we belong to this. You know? There's none of that in the abyss and there's no people in the abyss. So this, that's a little confusing, right? What, what is that talking about? Demons are from the abyss. Fallen angels are from the abyss. So what does it mean that it returns to existing from coming out of the abyss? Well, let's table that question for a bit and let's start with an easier question first. Is it a someone or is it a something? Well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 calls the Antichrist the son of perdition. So it is likely that it's a someone that's in mind here rather than a something, okay? So this Antichrist, this beast, which you saw was and is not, the easiest and most sensible answer is that this refers to his death and resurrection in Revelation chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. We read it here. And I saw one of his, the beast's heads, as it were, wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed. And what's the result? The same thing we see in Revelation 17. 
and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast, who is able to make war with him? How can you defeat somebody in battle that if you kill him, he comes back? That's the idea. And so the world wonders, they're shocked, they're amazed, and they worship. Now, that still doesn't answer the question of the abyss. What does it mean that he comes up out of the abyss? Well, there was a legend in John's day known as Nero Redivivus, which means Nero resurrected or Nero revived. This legend was that Nero had not committed suicide, but in fact, he staged his own death and he fled Rome. Three individuals claiming to be Nero, the resurrected Nero, led a rebellion against Rome in John's lifetime. So this is something that was very familiar to them in John's day. This led many in the early church to believe that the Antichrist would be Nero returned and someone who's been given and supernaturally prolonged life by Satan's power. Now, the idea of some guy who's like 2,000 years old sitting in some like posh palace somewhere in secret with a toga and, you know, a laurel reef around his head eating grapes is a little creepy to me. So I don't necessarily ascribe to that, but that is an idea that they had back then. I think, and I lean more this way. You see, the Roman religion taught that every person, place, or thing had a, a genus or a genus. Uh, it was a divine, like, guardian angel, a, a god or a spirit that, that basically all of us have, and it's with us from birth until death. Um, that is the religious ideology behind the concept of Roman emperor worship. It was believed that this genius, uh, uh, this, this divine guardian angel of the emperor came upon every new emperor, that he was a special god, a special uh, you know, creature. Uh, and so whenever the previous emperor died, he left that person and he went on the new emperor. And so that made every emperor uniquely divine and so should be worshiped. Now, when you said Caesar is Lord, by the way, that's why the phrase Jesus is Lord is a statement of deity, by the way. When you said Caesar is Lord, you would do so by offering a pinch of incense to his statue, which represented his genus, his, his divine, you know, God that came upon him. So we know that Satan longs to be worshiped as God, and we also know that Satan will possess the Antichrist, which, by the way, there's only one other person who has the title of perdition next to his name, and who is it besides the Antichrist? Judas, right? And what was unique about Judas that's similar to the Antichrist? After Judas took the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Satan possessed Judas in the same way that he will possess the Antichrist. So, is it possible that what this verse means is that Satan, the one who ascends up, he's the one in charge of all the fallen angels, that he was this guardian angel that possessed certain Roman emperors like a guy like Nero in the past and that he will do so again when he revives the Antichrist? That's my best guess because Revelation 13 verse 4 makes it clear that the unbelieving world doesn't just worship the Antichrist after he's revived, they also worship Satan. They worship the dragon, right? So that's my best guess is that this is referring to the 
reviving the death and resurrection of the Antichrist through Satan's power, and that Satan is now inhibiting him when he comes back to life. Okay? All right. That's the beast. The beast here is the Antichrist. Next we get to the seven heads, uh, verse 9. And here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven, and goes into perdition. This is self-explanatory. Verse 12. Oh, you ready for me to go on? No explanation needed? Wow, either that or you're just sleeping. So I put you to sleep already. Verse 9, the seven heads. Here is the mind which has wisdom. Now, here could refer to what came before or it could refer to the seven heads. I personally lean on the fact that it refers to what came before because it's very similar to the statement made in chapter 13 where it says, here is wisdom, let him that has understanding count the number of the beast. So I think it refers to the Antichrist because it means here is the mind that presently possesses, that's what has means, presently possesses wisdom. The people who presently possess wisdom during the time of the Antichrist or the tribulation saints, the same one that Revelation 13 refers to. So I believe it refers to that. But either way, the reference is to the tribulation saints and not us. This is why these verses are a bit of a struggle for us. I believe that if you're a believer living during the tribulation period, you're going to go, ah, this is obvious. All of us are struggling, but they're going to go, this is obvious to us because it's written for them. So we'll do our best. The seven heads, it says, are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, I need to point out something important. I know that we have a place called Mount Dora in Florida. That is not what this word is referring to. The word mountain here is a specific word that refers to something that's larger than a hill, okay? So I, I realize, I bring this up because people are like, oh, seven mountains, seven hills, and Rome, it's Rome, you know? Put the brakes on for a second. It is specifically saying that the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, we already know from verse 15 that what the woman sits on represents the entire world and all of its people. Verse 15, and he said unto me, the waters which you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Okay? It cannot be... Um, limited to one specific locale. Many suggest the head, seven heads represent Rome because Rome is the city built on seven hills. Yes, and if you Google it, you'll find 184 other cities that were built on seven hills, including Jerusalem and many other famous places. The problem is that con if we're going to locate it in Rome, it contradicts verse 15. This cannot be speaking of a single location. A city cannot sit on seven separate mountain ranges, okay? Verse 10 gives us more insight into what these seven mountains are. And there are seven kings, the old King James says. Literally, it reads, and they are seven kings. The seven mountains, the seven heads, they are seven kings, and so what we see here is that the seven heads have a double meaning. They represent leaders and the area they rule over. Now, the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible, especially when we have symbols going on. So turn with me to Jeremiah 51, and we're going to look at verses 24 and 25, because here God is going to use the same language here to describe Babylon 
as it does in Revelation 17. Revelation, I'm sorry, uh, Jeremiah 51, verses 24 and 25. It says in verse 24, And I will render unto Babylon and to all the inhabitants of Chaldea all their evil that they have done in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, says the Lord which destroys all the earth. And I will stretch out my hand upon you and roll you down from the rocks and I will make you a burnt mountain. That's exactly what happens to Babylon here in Revelation 17 and 18. God in, Revelation, in Jeremiah 51 is speaking of the destruction of Babylon in the end times. And he uses, he calls Babylon a mountain. So this here, when it's talking about mountains, it's speaking of the land that these seven leaders rule over, okay? Now, we have this land that the seven leaders rule over, and it is seven kings. And then it goes on to explain. Five are fallen. Five of these kings and their kingdoms are fallen. The word there means to cease to exist, to be destroyed. And it is almost always used of some type of violent downfall, some type of violent defeat. So five of these kings and their kingdoms have been violently destroyed. One is, so one of these kings and their kingdoms presently exists in John's day, and the other, the seventh head, is not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue a short time. When this seventh head, the king and its kingdom comes, it will be here in a relatively short amount of time compared to the other kings and their kingdoms, okay? You know, if we, if we figure out who these kings and their kingdoms are, the very last one will be very short compared to the longevity of the other ones. Now, the most common interpretation is to look at the five kingdoms that fell as five kingdoms that God judged in Scripture. So people will say the first one was Egypt, you know, and God judged them when he brought Israel out. Uh, then there's Assyria, God judged them. We see that in the book of Nahum. Then Babylon, God judged them. We saw that uh, in, in multiple books in the New Old Testament. Medo-Persia, who defeated Babylon, then God judged them through the Greeks, and then God judged them through the Romans is the idea. Now, that would mean John would be living during the time of the Sixth Empire, the Roman Empire, and then the Seventh will be that revived Roman Empire at the start of the Great Tribulation. That is the most common interpretation. Other views, some people try to find seven different forms of government the Roman Empire had or seven specific Roman emperors that persecuted God's people or even seven uh, forms the Roman Empire has taken in its inception until today. So, you know, they would say like, you know, the, you know, the Holy Roman Empire later on, the, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, Others even claim that this represents seven evil men that Satan raised up uh, to be the Antichrist, but they failed. And they would say that started with Nimrod and Hitler was one of them and all that. Which view is correct? I'm not going to, I can't tell you. I don't know for sure. And, and I'm not going to fight you. I, you know, if you disagree with my view, I do lean not towards the most common interpretation. I lean towards it being seven Roman emperors who persecuted God's people and the reason is, is because it, it seems weird to me that we already know that this beast is Rome. We already know that. It's the Roman Empire. And how could 
kingdoms that came before it sprout out of it. You know, that, that's my thought. How, these heads sprout out of the beast. How could it, how could they, if they were before this beast came into existence, how could they sprout out of it? But again, I'm, I'm not going to fight you. So if you think it's the, those other five kingdoms and that, then you're probably right anyway. Someone thought that was funny. The truth is, though, it's not important to understand what the previous five kings and kingdoms were. That's not what's important. We already know for sure that the sixth head here is Emperor Domitian and the Roman Empire because they're the ones who are there. They're the king and the kingdom that's there when John writes this, okay? Now is. We know that. And we know that means that the seventh head is the Antichrist and the revived Roman Empire. Now, that seventh kingdom will only be around for three and a half years, a short space, because something radical will happen to that kingdom when the Antichrist is wounded, verse 11. And the beast that was and is not, from verse 8, the Antichrist, even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goes into perdition, destruction. The Antichrist is both the seventh head seventh king and the eighth king because after he is killed and revived, he will return as a different man possessed by Satan. He will change his government, becoming the worst dictator the world has ever seen. Okay? So that's the seven heads. Verse 12. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet. But they receive power and strength, I'm sorry, power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So now we get to the final explanation of the 10 horns. The 10 horns, it tells us, are just, they're 10 leaders which have received no kingdom as yet. These would not be kingdoms or empires or nations during John's day. But they will receive power, the authority to rule, as kings for one hour, the phrase just means a brief time, with the beast. So these will be compatriots with the Antichrist for his short little kingdom, all right? Now it mentions here uh, more when we get down to verse 13, but we get most of our information about these 10 kings from the book of Daniel. So turn to Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 23 and 24. We read the vision that Daniel saw in our scripture reading. Here's going to be the angel's explanation to Daniel. And he's going to give us a little bit more information than John does. Now, despite its horribleness, this Global government in the Great Tribulation won't last anything close to as long as the old Roman Empire did. It'll be a, a blip on the radar as far as time is concerned, but it will be awful. Daniel 7.23, thus he said, the angel to Daniel, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down, and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. So these, this revived Roman Empire, it's going to emerge from something else that exists before it, a 10-leader coalition in Europe. 
These are the ten toes and the, uh, of iron and clay mingled together from the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. A unified and yet divided Europe. We see the seeds of this type of coalition already in the European Union now. Separate nations, but trying to be one, one entity, okay? Places in Europe that weren't individual kingdoms in John's day, but will be in the end times, and yet unified under 10 leaders. A lot of times when people talk about the various European groups that have tried to unite and are now the EU, they'll, they'll say things like, well, but they, it can't be the end times coalition because it's, you know, there's 27 nations involved or however many nations involved. Nations is not the point. It's leaders that are important, Okay. It doesn't matter how many nations are involved. It doesn't matter how many people are in their building when they get together to vote on stuff. The point is that there's going to be 10 guys who stand out. And out of those 10 guys who stand out, it doesn't tell us how, but the Antichrist who's outside the coalition somehow is going to gain the upper hand on three of those leaders and as a result gain control of the entire coalition. Perhaps that's what it means when in the first seal, it says he goes out to conquer with a bow with no arrows. And through some political maneuver, he will subdue these three guys and secure power for the whole coalition. What we see in Revelation chapter 17, verse 12, and their attitude towards the Antichrist is the end result of that coalition, all right? A unified Europe giving their combined power and resources to the Antichrist. Revelation 17, 13. These have one mind, one purpose, one intent, one resolve, and they shall give their power and strength to the beast to accomplish it. These 10 nations, maybe all the other nations are a part of this European coalition, but these 10 guys will remain steadfast to the Antichrist throughout the entire seven years, and they will know the Antichrist plan and will buy into it. Their purpose, their intent, the resolve that they give all their power and resources to the Antichrist is for verse 14, these shall make war with the Lamb. They will buy into the Antichrist plan to overthrow the Lord, but of course it will fail. And I love how the Bible just says, and the Lamb shall overcome them. It doesn't say there's this long protracted war where the enemy was pressing us in and then we defended and then we won. No, no, no. It just says the Lord will overcome them. Boom, it's over. And we know from Revelation 19, from Zechariah chapter 14, that's exactly what happens. It says, Jesus shows up, the enemy, you know, the Antichrist and his armies, they turn their, their weapons against Jesus, Jesus speaks, they all melt and die, conflict over. That's it. Because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. It does not matter how much power or resources this, these nations and kings put together and pull together to fight against the Lord. Jesus is the boss of every boss. He's the ruler of every ruler. It doesn't matter if you Voltron the world together. You can't beat him. People are going, who's Voltron? <laughs> Ask someone from the 80s. We know. It's futile to fight the Lord. Which brings up a good question. Do you recognize his kingship in your life? Or are you fighting him right now? Well, notice it says, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Jesus doesn't come back alone. We will be with him. Now, there's something important here because the words they are 
is not in the original text. The verb overcome is still in mind. If we read it correctly, it says, and the lamb shall overcome them, and those with him are called faithful and chosen and called. Those who are also victorious. The lamb doesn't just overcome, we overcome because we are called, chosen, and faithful. And that's good news because it means no matter how difficult things get now, you will win in the end. Amen? No matter what you're going through right now, no matter how hard it is, you will win in the end. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. Now, are we victorious because, you know, we're going to be up there and we're going to be chucking spears and swinging swords and doing... No, 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 no. We overcome. We are victorious because we are called, chosen, and faithful. We are victorious, number one, because the King of Kings has given us a new name. That's what it means we're called. I'm called something. Some people call me nasty things. Jesus doesn't call me nasty things. Jesus calls me a joint heir, calls me an adopted son and daughter of Almighty God. Right? That's what he calls you and me. He calls us sons and daughters, joint heirs with him, calls us brethren, right? So we are victorious because we've been given a new name. I don't go to the enemy and go, enemy, you know, I've spent spent all day reading my Bible. I've spent all my day praying. You're getting a whooping right now. No, that's a fast track to a face plant. I say, take it up with my lawyer. He already won. He's given me a new name. You don't have any claim on me. I stand as a joint heir with Christ. Talk to him. We're victorious also because the King of Kings, he has chosen us. He has set his love upon us. And with that position of being loved by the King, it comes with all the benefits of being his. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it says, For you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a treasured people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. When the enemy comes to you, you don't say, no, no, I'm ready for a fight. You go, I experienced God's mercy. Go bug somebody else. When he condemns you and says, you're not good enough, or God doesn't love you, you say, no, he set his love upon me. I'm his special treasure. The last reason we're victorious is because we're faithful. We're victorious because we've been counted faithful. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul explains how God could use him. He says, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Paul didn't say, I get, I get to serve you how I am now or God's using me the way he's using me now because I'm so great or I've learned so much or you know, I, you know, Jesus you know, is, is, is taking me so much farther than the rest of you. He goes, no, he empowered me because he counted me faithful. We're victorious because we've been empowered by Jesus to get the job done, not go out in our own efforts. Again, you go out in your own strength, your own energy, it's a fast track to a face plant. If we go in the power of God's spirit, right? Can't lose. Now, 
I got to speed this up because we're out of time. Having learned about all the players involved in Babylon the Great, the final verses of the chapter explain how these final players, these players interact with the woman. And he said unto me, the waters which you saw where the woman sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. This global inclusive religion, it impacts everyone, even these kings. And so it says, and the ten horns, these kings that you saw upon the beast, these shall hate the prostitute and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. These leaders who are in league with the Antichrist, they will destroy the global religion so completely that all those jewelry she wore, all the adornments she had, all the nice clothes she had on, they'll strip it from her. They'll burn her with fire. They, they, none of it will remain. All her power, her prestige, her wealth, gone. And they'll consume everything she built and fold it into this new government that they're going to form. This will occur at the midpoint of the Great Tribulation, three and a half years in, when the Antichrist is you know, wounded and comes back to life. You know, most people teach that the false prophet will lead this inclusive global religion, but the Bible does not teach that. The false prophet does not come to power until the middle of the tribulation period because he is the one who replaces those who are leading this inclusive global religion that's destroyed. He is not the leader of an inclusive global religion. He becomes the evangelist and the enforcer for worshiping the Antichrist, which is a new exclusive religious system set up in defiance to God. And while the 10 leaders hate the inclusive global religion, they, they're all on board with the Antichrist's exclusive religion. And they back him 100%. Verse 17, for God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God be fulfilled. The word here, put, actually can also mean allow, and since God doesn't tempt people to sin, allow is more appropriate here. For God has allowed it to be in their hearts to fulfill, to act out or accomplish his will, which is they will agree to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. For the first half of the Great Tribulation, this will seem like the greatest world peace effort ever, the greatest coalition the world has ever known. But that lie will be unveiled and become a dictatorship when the Antichrist is revived. And God allows them to destroy that inclusive global religious system because that's part of his plan. His plan is to destroy all of Babylon the Great, and this is just the first phase of that. For it says he will allow this until the words, all the words of God shall be fulfilled. Babylon the Great has more coming because false religion isn't its only crime. It's guilty of other things that we will see God judge in chapter 18. Now, that sounds like then that verse 17 would be the proper time to end the chapter and transition to those other judgments in chapter 18. But the Bible gives us one more explanation of this woman in verse 18. The angel tells John, and the woman that you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Where she sits in the end is seven mountains, which represents kingdoms, seven kings, right? But the woman herself is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. That phrase reigns over is in the present tense. The, the great city, the one that is presently ruling over the earth. There is no other way to properly interpret that except the city of Rome, which means 
that the Babylonian religion founded by Babylon had its headquarters in John's time in Rome. And we know from history that that's the truth. Julius Caesar, he was a member of the College of Priests who ran the religious systems in Rome. When he became emperor, he took the title of Pontifex Maximus, which means greatest bridge builder or greatest high priest. Every emperor after him took the same title. Now, does that mean Rome will be the headquarters of the end times, inclusive global religion? I don't know. But I will say this, the title of Pontifex Maximus is still held by a religious leader who lives in Rome today. Now, the Magi have moved from Egypt to Babylon to Pergamos to Rome over the centuries, so who knows what location it will be in and what leader will be at its head in the end. I can't tell. The point that the angel's making to John is that it's going to rise again. And once the Antichrist is done using it, he will destroy it. I am not against peace and cooperation and building a better world, but I am 100% against any attempt to do so that is not done in submission to Christ and his ways. Because whether it's the Lord who destroys it or the enemy who destroys it, either way it can't succeed. Either way. Either way we're buying into a lie, which means we want nothing to do with that. Now, you might be thinking, isn't this the day we take communion, Pastor Will? It is. This doesn't sound like a very communion-oriented passage in Scripture. And yet, when we talk about our lives being in submission to Jesus and to his ways, there's a part of the Lord's Supper that is like that, where we're reminding ourselves of what he did for us, and then we're recommitting ourselves and our loyalty to him, right? And so, this passage of Scripture is a great morning to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross, to declare our loyalty to him and to him alone, that he's our king, and because of his great love for us, we love him back, amen? So as the guys come up, they're gonna lead us in song, and you know, you've got the elements here. If you need one, just kind of wave down the ushers. They can get one for you. Um, but my encouragement to you is as we sing, you know, this is a time to, to just declare your loyalty to the Lord. Say, Lord, I am your subject. You're my king. And, and Lord, thank you for loving me. Thank you for doing all this for me. And I submit my life to you and to follow you and whatever you have for me. And if you've never submitted your life to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, if you've never repented of your sins and put your trust in Christ, then this isn't just something to do to do as a ritual. It has meaning, you know? When we're doing this, we're declaring, he died for me and I believe it. I'm following him. So if you've never done that, then as we sing, that's the time to get things right with God, to repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. And then we can all partake together as believers. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you so much for your great love for us. And we, Lord, want to remember that this morning, but we also want to redeclare, Lord, our loyalty to you. You are our king. You are our boss. You're our Lord. And we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.